The following content is for informational purposes only. It should not be used or construed as legal or tax advice, nor is a recommendation related to your specific situation. All concepts presented should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation. Advisory services are offered through Veracity Capital LLC, a registered investment advisor. Welcome to Capital Conversations, presented by Veracity Capital, a podcast talking money, speaking truth. Hello, and thank you for joining us on a new episode of Capital Conversations, a podcast where you'll hear our team of wealth advisors speak nothing but the truth about money. For those listening and unfamiliar with the show, I'm Mike Colopy, a wealth advisor here in Atlanta with Veracity Capital. Aside me are my co-hosts, Kevin Boutwell and Charles Crowley. Today, we're going to dive into behavioral science and how it impacts investor performance. There was a study done by Dalbar, which looked at equity returns versus investor returns. And what we can see when we look back is that over the past 20 years, equities have returned a little bit over 6% annually. Investor returns, those investing in U.S. equities have only returned 4.25%, right? So why is there a gap between the performance of an index versus the investors who are investing in that similar index, right? And a lot of that ties back to behavioral science and decision-making, psychology. That's what we're going to dive into today. So Kevin, why don't you kick it off and give our listeners one of the most common biases that we see? First, you know, I just want to let the listeners know, we kind of view, when we talk about behavioral finance, this is actually in contrast to what people call the efficient market theory. And so I think it's good for people to have a framework of what both of those mean. So for the listeners, efficient market theory are, you know, people who believe in efficient markets believe that there's really no opportunities because the markets themselves, the stock markets, bond markets are, you know, they have all available information and people are rational and they react quickly. And so anytime there's a mispricing, it, it immediately fixes itself. Okay. So that's a mis- efficient market theory. And then behavioral finance and behavioral science came out a little bit later that basically said, well, wait a second. People aren't perfect. We're not always rational. Uh, we have these cognitive biases, especially in the short term, right? Maybe long term, sometimes those, those tend to fix themselves as a whole. Uh, you know, the markets tend to reflect the actual fundamentals, but in the short term, there's, there's behavioral biases. What's really interesting is researchers from both camps have actually won Nobel prizes. So that's how good each each um, kind of camp's research has been in developing theories, thoughts, uh, you know, researching data and showing examples to kind of prove this. So where do we sit? We probably think it's a little bit of both. Uh, we think the the markets are pretty efficient. And for the most part, they do reflect true prices. Although we also believe and have seen that behavioral finance is a real thing. And so there are sometimes disconnects between what we do as, as people and investors on what we actually should be doing. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. I want to chime in real quick because I think you both hit on something that I consistently see in some analytics that I view on a quarterly basis. JP Morgan puts out 
their guide to the market. And, and from prior episodes, you may have heard me reference this before, but there's a chart in there. Uh, Mike, you, you mentioned how the a- average investor typically achieves a lower rate of return than some of the major indices, some of the major asset classes. Uh, and Kevin, you, you talked about the, the impact over the short run versus the long run. And I think that 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 action that investors take, whether it's reactionary or whether it's based on emotion, that's really kind of what we're getting at here. And I think the JP Morgan chart that I like so much talks about a period from 2001 to 2020. And you're talking about a period of time that encompasses two very, very volatile periods in the market. And the average investor over that, over that period of time averaged about 3% versus the S&P at about 75 a 60 40, you know, kind of balanced portfolio achieving about six and a half. So I think that that kind of goes to show that this action, especially over the short term and some of the things that we're going to talk about, it's really impactful when we spread it out over a longer period of time. Yeah, exactly. There are a lot of different types of, of biases. We're going to cover kind of five today that I think we see on a regular basis. And by the way, we're subject to these biases as well. Just because we're professional investment advisors, we still have the, the, the same cognitive barriers. The difference is, is that, you know, we're kind of trained to see these and notice those and we have experience doing that. But when we go through these, we'll define what they are and give you some examples. And it's not always related to investments. Each one of these will be related to investments, but I bet the listeners will, will probably after going through these, think of some times that they've been subject to these cognitive biases on their own, um, whether they're, t- they're talking about their portfolio or, or something else. So the first one we'll go through is anchoring. And anchoring occurs when we're influenced by a certain number, a purchase point, a, a price. And it can be completely arbitrary or it could be something that's out there. Good negotiators do this. Somebody could be selling you a used car and throw out $60,000 and you say, that's ridiculous. It's used. How about 30? And even though you're, you were, you weren't going to go past 45 because of that such a large anchor, you actually come up a little bit and you end up buying it for 50,000. I mean, that, that kind of thing happens all the time. This is fascinating to me. This was a study that was done and you, you can actually do this on your own and test it out with maybe friends or family. But basically, here's how the study went. They asked a question to a group of people and they said, how many doctors do you think are in the in the United Kingdom? You know, you have the, the island there of the United Kingdom. How many doctors do you think are there? And so everybody's just like, has no idea. Then the seconds before you guess, write down the last four numbers of your phone number. So for me, that starts with the 3,000. For Charles, that may start with an 8,000. Most people that filled it out guessed they were just within a, a, for example, I might put, I think there's 3,500 doctors in the UK. And then Charles may put, because his last four start with 8,000, he puts like there's 7,500 doctors in the UK or whatever. It was really interesting to see how many people get anchored to even a completely arbitrary number. And that's true. Like these, these have done many different tests like this and you can practice this if you need a big enough sample size, but hopefully that kind of gets people to, to the point of what anchoring is. And then Mike, maybe you can throw us some examples of where you've seen some of your clients uh, kind of get into this, where, where, how it's related to actual investments. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you an example. That's very top of mind right now. We can look at Netflix, right? Netflix stock price is faltering. It's down significantly. They're losing um, users. 
the stock was trading close to $700, right? $691 it peaked out at. Right now it's trading around 226. I don't personally have any clients that are anchoring to a number, but I do know there's investors out there that remember Netflix trading at a 691 and in their mind, I'm sure they're anchoring towards a much higher number and that's going to keep them invested even though there's new information coming available that's saying, you know, this isn't worth 691 anymore. And I think that's really what um where anchoring can throw you off is, you know, you have this company that you're really comfortable with and you'll actually in your mind value it at something very different than what it's worth because you're anchoring on that high point or that price point when you purchase the stock. I actually want to go a little bit, I guess, more high level with anchoring because when I read about it, I, I understood what it was. But when I look at some of the, the key themes with anchoring, the reason I think it's so impactful is because of how un- subconscious it is, right? You know, this right. is something that we don't even really know that we're doing. I, I think that at the core of it, it really kind of goes back to whatever information within the decision making process was given to us early on. That's what we anchor to. That's the numbers that we anchor to. That's the data that we anchor to. So when I say I want to go a little bit on high level, I want to go to the planning side of it. Maybe not to the investments, but the planning side. I think a lot of times when we are dealing with clients and we do a, a financial plan for them, they may have great results in the, in the beginning, you know, and then life changes, but the anchoring bias or impact says that over the course of their life, even though things change and there may be a necessity to alter the plan or update the plan, they're going to go back to that anchored bias that I was great in the beginning. I don't necessarily need to make changes. And that can be a little bit dangerous. So the the fact that this can lead people to not make changes to their overall plan when they need to is something they need to be cognizant of. I think the the other thing that I've found very interesting is how values can come into play here, uh, whether that's on the planning side or the investment side, values themselves can be one of those anchored points that people latch on to and make decisions based on. So high level, I, I thought that this was probably one of the most interesting biases that we actually see in our industry. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely see it, see it quite a bit. So the next one is confirmation bias. So confirmation bias we see this a ton as well. So it's when investors really look to seek information out that really just confirms their own views or, or like they have like a predetermined idea or, or they made a, already have made their decision. And sometimes you see this when you meet people, it has nothing to do with investments and you're just like, look, you've already made your decision. I can't talk you in or out of this, whether it's doing this or that, because everything they're doing is confirming why they have made that decision. And so with investing, it can be really dangerous. It can lead you to be under diversified. It can leave you to be in an inappropriate risk tolerance in your portfolio. And so ultimately what it is, is people will look to seek out only, even if they're researching, they're only looking for the research that confirms their idea or view. And this is something that we kind of all fall under. And there's just, there's lots of examples out there. But I mean, I remember experience one not too long ago where a client held a pretty significant size of GE. Uh, GE for many, many years was just a large blue chip company almost felt like, you know, you collect the dividend, the company's, you know, too big to fail or really even too big to change. If anything, it's just always going to be around. It's always going to be around the same kind of financial strength that it had. And so when things started to trail off for GE and they started to divest some of their businesses, the revenue started to change. Of course, their stock price started going down. 
I remember several clients in this situation, mostly former executives, say any good news, they would just really just um, confirm that. And it's almost like they were only reading and looking for good news about GE, whether no, they're, you know, this divester is actually going to increase their, their return on equity. It's going to increase their future stock price. And, and all of that may be, but you don't have to look far to see there's other news, right? That's out there that, that actually other analysts and most investors were looking at, which is why the stock price was going down. And so ultimately confirmation bias is something that we all have to look out for for ourselves because frankly it's harder to to continue researching right when you do some research and due diligence it's kind of like oh great i found some information that i want to hang on to this makes sense it's almost like you block everything else out and that's what confirmation bias is and it, it can be dangerous i think it's become very challenging because we're in a, a an age of information overload where if i'm extremely bullish, extremely bearish. You know, if I have some sort of esoteric view on the markets, I can find someone who is well-researched, well-renowned that probably has some sort of similar opinion and I can block the rest out, right? So it's very easy to fall into confirmation bias in this age of uh, very available information, right? The thing I, I find extremely interesting in the past few years, especially as we've gone through several pretty contentious political seasons, is how confirmation bias can be influenced by political views or political platforms, mm-hmm. social views. Mm-hmm. We see it a lot in politics, right? And, you know, we talked a little bit about values. Unfortunately, I think a lot of individuals out there do make decisions with their investments and about their portfolio based on political and social views, which, you know, good or bad, I'm not making a judgment there. It's just simply that over my career, I have found that politics aren't an investment strategy. You know, you can have views and you can have things that shape your decisions. You can have things that contribute to why you think certain things, but in and of themselves, they're not a strategy. And I think people get too wrapped up in confirming their own views and how that should play out in their life. And it gets wrapped up in their investments. And I think that that points out some of the importance of objectivity and having an accountability partner and an advisor. Agreed, Charles. There, there's certainly been some conversations we've had over the past few months related to international investing. And a lot of that, just as you described, ties yep. back to political views and feelings about you know uh, emerging markets and, and other countries around the world. And that can lead to, you know, some sort of influence on how we're actually going to invest our portfolio. I mean, think about it, guys. How many times have you had conversations over the last several years with clients asking questions about precious metals, gold and silver? I mean, you know, right now, oil is a big one. You know, there there are a lot of politics and and geopolitical issues that are playing into those questions. They're good questions, but it, it to me, that's kind of affirmation that this is real. Confirmation bias is real and people are kind of looking for ways to confirm their concerns. And I do think it does come into play in personal finance, right? It's very personal and investors need portfolios that they will stick with, that they're comfortable with, that they feel somewhat aligns with their values, right? So there is some sort of balance there where we do need to make sure you know, investors are, are are comfortable and in it for the long run, and they don't have this distaste for what they're fully invested in. Um, but but it's certainly a balance, and I think to tie it back to the more extreme examples, like Kevin's GE example, right? There are certainly some major negative consequences that can come from having a confirmation bias and and kind of being left alone to make these major decisions based on it. 
the next bias we're going to talk about is called framing, framing bias. And, you know, I think of framing to think of it in, in context. And so it's really just the tendency of, of investors to think of situations or respond to them differently based solely on the context of which they were really just delivered or, or presented to them or, or how they experienced uh, whatever that is. Framing comes up quite a bit as well. And if you think of it this way, you know, let's say a client has a predetermined financial goals and they have predetermined risk tolerance and all these things that, that typical advisors will do for you. Well, if they go through a recent net loss, have you ever seen this where they have a net loss and they decide to go more risky because they're framing it to themselves that, oh, I had this, this loss. Now I either need to make up for it. I need to, you know, get back to even itis or, they just feel like, oh, the markets are down. So they're framing that it's cheap, which may not always be the case. Maybe they were too high to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. So there's just lots of things and, and it goes vice versa. You may have a net gain. Your portfolio does really well. And I'm not talking about systematic rebalancing, but you'll see where people have a net gain and they say, you know what? I want to take less risk now. When it, it's really like, look, your goals haven't changed. Your risk tolerance hasn't changed. The portfolios are going to move. Let's keep everything in the correct context and make our decisions uh, appropriately there. And, and so we do see this one quite a bit in practice. You see it a ton in marketing. You know, we were talking about that pre-show that this is, this is primarily a kind of a marketing bias. How are you going to make someone perceive something as positive or negative? And I think I read two examples. One was the label on yogurt. If they put 20% fat on there versus 80% fat free, what do you think people are going to go towards? They're going to go towards 80% fat free. Another example was cleaning solution. If they say it kills 95% of germs versus 5% survive, nobody's going to, nobody's <laughs> going to like the idea of something surviving. So they're going to go with, you get what I'm saying? Like, so it's about what is perceived as positive, what is perceived as negative. And that can make people or influence individuals in their decisions on who they hire, who they work with. You know, th there's a lot of ways that those positive and negative spins on things can, can influence our decisions. So uh, illusion of control, that's a, a bias in itself. A lot of us have a tendency to think that we have more foresight, we have more control over a situation than we actually do. And this goes way beyond different things than investments. But it really, again, like all of these can be detrimental if you're not noticing it and you're, and you're not careful. A lot of times you'll see, you know, maybe the markets are very volatile and there'll be down days, big days, and clients may, this is when they want a time say, hey, you know, Kevin, I'm thinking that, you know, we go to cash or I'm thinking that the markets are way down. I'm thinking that we go in on on this or that. And it's like, you have to go back. What is the process of where you're finding the opportunity? You don't want to just go on a whim of thinking that you have this illusion, literally illusion of control because you can't, like we can't control the markets. Investors can't, uh, advisors can't, uh, PhD researchers can't. And so you just want to be very careful about uh, this bias that can really lead us into uh, a bad situation. You, you tend to see this more. We see this with some of our business owner clients, some of our corporate executives, people who are in these positions where they have to make decisions on a regular basis and, and pretty quickly. And I think that, um, you know, we're all subject to this, which is something everybody needs to be careful of. How much do you guys think the illusion of control plays into investors trying to time the market? Timing the market is all about, to me, illusion of control and overconfidence, which we're going to get to overconfidence in a minute. None of us know exactly what, think about it. I mean, the, the multiple millions of other people that are participating in the market, we have no idea what everybody's going to do there. 
one of my favorite books called When Genius Failed is all about that, where literally geniuses, um, you know, had these investments and they did make billions of dollars, but they ended up losing it all uh, and then some. And so um, one of the quotes was, you can never, even though they would, they argued that their investment thesis was correct. And, and I actually think it was. The problem was the rest of the market didn't agree. And so what they said was, you know, never underestimate the fact that you may have a good investment idea, but you may not have enough liquidity, right? For the market to catch up to it mm-hmm. for you to be able to realize that, that gain. So in other words, they said they made the right investment and they probably did, but the market was behind. It took a while for the market to catch up and they ran out of liquidity because they were over leveraged. But that is, that, that is illusion of control and, and overconfidence together with why they were trying to time these things. The markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Yep. That, that was, that was it. That's exactly what happened. As Kevin had mentioned, corporate executives, business owners, they fall prey to the illusion of control, understandably, because of the positions they're in. Um, you know, it, you, you see this not only just specifically related to timing the market investments, things like that, but you think about it in a long-term financial plan, right? Somebody thinking about retiring. And when we look at market returns and we think about long-term projections and how we're going to securely get someone to and through retirement, right? You can see the illusion of control where maybe a corporate executive or a business owner puts a growth target on their company that's much greater than is realistic because they're somewhat of an insider, right? They feel like their company is better. They're bound for more growth. And again, that can really throw someone off track when they're thinking that their growth trajectory and their retirement plans are much different than what would be a normal plan because, again, they think they have the ability or some sort of control more than they do over their growth. So I think that and overconfidence is similar but different. Uh, so we'll talk about that one next. Overconfidence is, is really just a tendency to overestimate our ability to successfully achieve something. And you see this everywhere. And there's another test done, super interesting, and probably doesn't surprise everybody. They've asked, you know, a group of people, do you think you're above average or below average driver? And I can tell you, if I asked the three of us, every one of us would say we're above average drivers. I certainly would. But um, we know that they can't be statistically accurate, right? We know that there has to be people even that are average and below average, but nobody really does that. In fact, like 70% of people say they're above average drivers. Mm, and I'm so, mediocre at best. <laughs> well, you're one, you're one of the few. Um, I have a left but, foot, so <laughs> but, i say I'm average. <laughs> but that's like what overconfidence is, and you, you can see how this can, can play into investments, obviously. And so where we see this, again, um, particularly, you know, corporate employees or executives that get restricted stock or stock options. We see this a lot where they have a lot of overconfidence in that stock, mainly because they believe that, you know, because they work there, they have some sort of information and confidence based on their projects that they're doing. And some of these are really large companies, right? So like even the, even if they're, uh, you know, leadership over a, a certain um, segment or division, there's so much more going on in that company that they have no control over. And this overconfidence leads to maybe being over concentrated in one security where you'd ask them, you know, hey, if you, if somebody gave you this much cash, would you buy 
that much company stock? And the answer is usually no. It's like, well, then you really shouldn't be holding it now, right? Mm-hmm. You know, taxes aside for this point. But we, we, we just see this overconfidence quite a bit, which also, to your point, leads to market timing and things of that nature. I also saw a little bit of this pop up in the reading I was doing on anchoring bias as well, just because I feel like a lot of times when you're talking about uh, overconfidence, it's tied back to something that happened in the past. It's tied to you know previous outcomes, previous experience, which could have been good or bad. But a lot of times if you're talking about overconfidence, it's tying it back to a previous outcome that was very good. And I think the one thing that we always hear in our industry is that you know, future performance cannot be indicated by, you know, past results. So I think that the overconfidence aspect is pretty dangerous. Yeah. You know, all all of these, these five biases, I think, in my opinion, are probably the most common that we most see. We really didn't have time to go into like, how do we combat these and, and how do we mitigate these? But at the end of the day, What can really help us with all of these is one, understanding that we don't have control. Or if you think that um, you're not overconfident, you you probably are, right? And, you know, the the anchoring in those pieces, what you can do is build a financial plan that's goals-based. I mean, make sure you understand your risk tolerance. Make sure your your advisor and you understand your 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 capacity to take risk. Make sure you understand the what kind of the the scenarios could play out run multiple scenarios of of what would happen to your life or plan or lifestyle if things were to to go this way or that way and just continue to kind of run those in your head so you can really make decisions more based on i don't want to say facts but more realities and more you know higher probabilities of outcomes uh, versus letting our kind of emotional side take over and and push us in the situations that we really just you know can't control so Mike, Kevin, uh, really appreciate the conversation today. It was uh, hopefully very helpful for everyone listening out there. But we want to drop a few things on you before we close. Uh, First and foremost, if you like today's conversation, head out and subscribe to the podcast. Follow along with us. Head out to social media. Connect with our team. We are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Uh, So all of those platforms, you can connect and follow along with us. Do head out to veracitycapital.com. We've got a lot of great content on our website, uh, including this podcast, but also some written content that I think you would enjoy. So check that out. And we certainly hope that you continue to listen here on the Capital Conversations podcast. Mm-hmm.